0: That song could be 10 verses long and I'd be okay with it. What an awesome song. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for being here. Let me remind you that next week we're going to confuse you even more, okay? We've just started back with classes and everything, and then we're going to switch it all up again. So starting next Sunday in the morning for our morning worship, we will have two distinct worship services. We're going to take the concurrent uh, model that we have now and just spread it out a little bit. Uh, no more racing down the hall. So uh, 8.15 will be first service, and then we'll have our Bible classes, and then we will have the 10.30 service, okay? And I say two two distinct services. I don't mean that they will be different in any way. They'll be the same. In fact, for the first few weeks, we're going to wear our song leaders out and have them lead both of them. So um, we just want to get it off the ground and make sure it goes smoothly and both services will be identical. We've sent out a survey. Hopefully you got that and you answer that through Alexio, you know, just kind of talking about what service you might attend. We're not trying to, you know, pin you to one. We're just trying to get an idea. Uh, obviously, we'd like to have a decent split, so uh, hopefully you're looking forward to that next week. If you have any questions about that, call the office this week. We can help you. Um, also, Tonight was going to be a night where I was going to have Britt Farmer here, and I was going to interview him. Britt Farmer's the preacher at West Freeway where they had the church shooting recently, and he was going to be here, and we were going to talk about some things tonight, but because of COVID, that, that's not going to happen, so instead since there is an opening tonight and me instead of me preaching I'm going to get David Lopez to do our sermon tonight so our new university minister is going to preach tonight and you'll want to be here for that because he is really awesome and you're going to love that message that he delivers Um, there was a gentleman who died and he went to the pearly gates and Peter was standing there and Peter uh, looked him up and down looked at his files and said uh, we don't have any record of you being here supposed to be here so he sent him down to hell And the angel of the devil says, uh, yeah, not supposed to be here either. So he sends him back up to heaven. And so he gets to the pearly gates again. And Peter looks through his files and everything. And he says, "Um, actually, we're showing that you're not supposed to be here for another 11 years. Who's your doctor? (laughs) You know, the question for now and for all eternity is not who is your doctor, but who is your savior? And we all know the answer to that question, right? Who is your savior? Well, it's Jesus Christ, obviously, obviously, right? Or is it? Look with me at John chapter 19 and verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let me ask you, what is the it? When he says, it is finished, what's the it? What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to the perfect and sinless sacrifice, right? The atonement for our sins. It was completed. Jesus had died on the cross the way it was supposed to be, right? It was finished. In his dying breath, Jesus said it. But we don't always act like it's finished, do we? I mean, we do it subconsciously. We don't mean anything by it, but there's this... There's this feeling within us all, I think, that we've got to help Jesus out a little bit. You know, uh, we feel like maybe there's more I need to do. Maybe if I could just do more, I could merit this in some way, shape, or form. So when we say things like, well, I just, I don't feel forgiven, or I I, I feel like I just need to do more. I hope I've done enough. What are we really saying? Maybe we're saying that we don't truly believe that it is is really finished. And listen, I'm preaching to myself here, because I I struggle with this mightily sometimes. I know I shouldn't. I know what I should be believing and doing, but yet it's still difficult, right? I I feel like sometimes I've got to help Jesus finish my salvation, right? That I've got to somehow help him out. But what can I do anyway, right? What can any of us do to bring about our own salvation, Maybe we do need to come to church more. Maybe we do need to pray more and read our Bible more and all that and serve more. But at the end of the day, this is completely and totally up to Jesus, isn't it? If this is going to be accomplished, let's pause for a moment and take a little quiz. It's a multiple choice quiz, so I think you're going to be okay. So here's the question. How how good do you have to be to get to heaven? And the choices are A, pretty good, B, really good, C, better than John Doe, or D, perfect. And I think most people in the, in the world, religious or otherwise, would say, hey, as long as I'm pretty good, I'm going to be okay. In fact, most people could agree that either A through C is the right answer, any one of those. But actually, the correct answer is D. You've got to be perfect, which presents a huge problem because we're all a moral situation, aren't we? Every single one of us. No one is exempt. There is this vast chasm that exists between us and God, and it's self-inflicted. It's because of sin that there is this distance between us and God. It's not spatial as much as it is moral. And so in order to narrow down the distance, in order to bridge the gap, we need to either live perfectly or we need someone who has been perfect, to pay the debt for us. We must live a perfect life, or we've got to have someone perfect to take our place. And since we all blew it years ago, the latter is our only option, really. You see, if we could live perfectly from the time that we were born to the time that we die, we're fine. But most of us can't get out of bed without sinning. Most of us have sinned before we ever even get to work. If we're going to live to the ripe old age of 100 without ever sinning, that's one thing, but that ain't going to happen. So we have to have someone who has lived a perfect life to take our place. Maybe this will put it into a little better perspective. Suppose that there is a very wealthy businessman who puts up a million dollars in prize money to anyone who can swim from San Diego to Honolulu. And the rules of the contest are very clear. You get in the water in San Diego, and you don't get out of the water until Honolulu. No equipment can be used. You can't stop. San Diego to Honolulu swimming. That's it. On the day of the contest, no one shows up. Why would they? I mean, it's impossible, right? And a million dollars, that's a lot of money, but I mean. So the, the wealthy businessman ups the ante to $10 million. And on the day of the contest, 150 people show up. I mean, $10 million, they know they probably can't do it, but why not try? And so they all jump into the water, and most of them fall out at about a mile. Some others make it to about, you know, two miles, three miles, four miles, whatever. By 10 miles, there's only two people left. One of them's a former Olympic swimmer. He makes it all the way to the 150-mile mark until he gives up. They pull him out of the water, get him into the boat, and there's the wealthy businessman. And the swimmer says, well, I deserve the prize money. I made it further than anybody else. The businessman says, no, that's not how this works. Well, I should at least get partial credit, right? I should get some money for, you know, reflecting how far I went. And he said, no, that's not how it works. You had to go from San Diego to Honolulu. There's no partial credit here. And such is the case with our salvation. There's no partial credit. God doesn't grade on a curve, right? This is an all or nothing proposition. He's made the rules very clear. So a ship that sinks a mile off the shore is so close, but still so far away, right? I mean, close may count in horseshoes and hand grenades, but not when it comes to our spirituality, not when it comes to eternity. Somebody who misses the bullseye by that much still misses it completely. The basketball player that rims out the last second shot, his team still loses, so there is no points for getting close. When we look at our salvation, when we look at what it means to be a disciple, there is no partial credit discipleship and thus eternity is all or nothing but as sad and gloomy as all that sounds it absolutely doesn't have to be that way no one has to live in fear of being late to the party or just missing out on the festivities and the reason why is because we serve a god who delivers he always has in fact let's go back to the old testament and look at one of the greatest deliverers and i'm not talking about david or moses I'm actually talking about Esther. Here's the cliff notes on the story of Esther. Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem in approximately 538 B.C. So the story of Esther takes place around 50 years after that incident. There are still many Jews that remained in exile, and the story of Esther begins with the king throwing a feast that lasted six months. Actually, feast would not be a correct term to apply here it was a bunch of drunken idiots sitting around acting like drunken idiots and so during the course of this feast the major drunken idiot the king decides that he wants to bring out his wife and parade her around naked so everyone can see and reflect on her beauty and she refuses good for her right But this means that she loses her place in the royal line. She is no longer queen. And so the king comes up with a plan. He's going to bring in all the virgins into his harem. And he is one by one going to rob them of their virginity. And that's how he is going to pick the next queen. Then we see that's how Esther arrives on the scene. But it wasn't all terrible. God was at work in the life of Esther. Just like he was with Joseph and Daniel, Esther has God with her and she rises to a place of prominence. That's just the beginning of her story though. The king promotes a man by the name of Haman to be leader over all the princes. All the king's servants are to bow down and pay homage to Haman. But there was one man who refused. His name was Mordecai. Mordecai had always been one that just goes along to get along. He never caused a fuss. He never brought attention to himself. But this was enough. He couldn't go here. He couldn't bow down to Haman because Mordecai was a Jew. He had his own king. He wasn't Persian. He wasn't going to bow down to any any Persian royalty. He had a king. And obviously, this caused a big riff. Haman was not happy. The egotistical Haman decided that he would kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And you look at Esther chapter three, starting in verse eight, it says, "'Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, "'There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples "'in all the provinces of your kingdom. "'Their laws are different from those of all other people, "'and they do not observe the king's laws, "'so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. "'If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, "'and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver "'into the hands of those who carry on the king's business.'" to put into the king's treasuries. Well, Esther finds out about Haman's plan, and she is distraught, to say the least. She's a Jew as well. And Mordecai is her cousin who helped raise her. So obviously, she is gravely concerned, and it's in the midst of her anguish that Mordecai sends her a message. It reads like this, "Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you are in the king's palace that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's the signature line of Esther. Many sermons have been done on for such a time as this, but I want you to understand there's a whole lot more to the story of Esther than just that tagline. That is, though, the kickstart to her redemptive work. Esther plans a banquet Haman once again runs into Mordecai, Mordecai, and of course Mordecai does not bow down, he refuses to do so, and this infuriates the egotistical Haman, and so he has the gallows prepared so that Mordecai can be hanged. But during this time, the king pulls out the chronicles and he begins reading them and remembers that Mordecai had saved his life. But he remembers that Mordecai was never really properly honored for that. And so he decides to have a parade for Mordecai, to celebrate Mordecai, to put a royal robe on him. And guess who's going to be the organizer of this event? Haman. That's got a sting, right? And so... The parade happens, all this, there's a banquet, and after serving King the king and Haman some wine, here's what happened. Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 2, it says, And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king. And if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my, as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Havsuras asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do thus? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy is the wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. So long story short, the king becomes angry with Haman. Haman grovels. The king will hear none of it and has, him, has Haman hanged in the very gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Here's why I recount the story of Esther. Because the major theme is one of deliverance. Many read this story and they say, well, yeah, I mean, for such a time as this, right, we can all be an Esther, we can all be a deliverer. No, that's not the point. No, the point is, if we were living in that day and age, we would probably be one of the Jews, fearful that their life was going to end at the hands of the king, hoping and praying that someone would step up and deliver us. That's all the Jews could do in this story, is just hope and pray that God would raise someone up. Mordecai believed that God would even if it wasn't Esther. Notice verse 14 of chapter 4. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Even if Esther didn't do something, Mordecai had full faith and trust that God was going to act. Because God is a God of deliverance, always has been, always will be. So whether it's Moses or Joshua or David or Esther, God is going to deliver. And Esther points forward to who? to our deliverer, to the Messiah. I mean, consider her story in light of our story. God raised her up to save the people. She was willing to sacrifice her own life on behalf of the people because she was willing to die on behalf of the people. The enemy was defeated and God's people gained life and glory. We're not unlike the Jews of Esther's day. We are scattered throughout the world. We are living in our own kingdom, but we're also living in this kingdom. And sometimes this kingdom that we're living in that runs parallel with our kingdom asks us to bow down, and we don't bow down. We refuse to, and that may bring persecution, right? And so like the Jews, we need a deliverer, and we have a deliverer. A deliverer has been raised up. The enemy has been defeated. We will live on in glory, right? But think about this too. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, it says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. You know, we often speak in terms of people seeking after God, right? And we even tell people, seek after God. The problem is that by and large people don't do they? They just don't. Yes, we need to be seeking after God, but many people are filling the void in their life with other things, right? Money, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be, not realizing that that hole is a God-shaped hole, and only God can fill that void. But here's something else. Not only should we be seeking God, our deliverer is a God who seeks. And I'm not sure we always recognize that about our God. To be a rescuer not only means that you go to the person who's crying out for help. Being a rescuer also implies that like a lifeguard, you're sitting and standing watch over the landscape looking for anyone who may be drowning who can't cry out for help, right? And you go to them. The entire story of redemption that is presented in Scripture shows a God who seeks. He sought Abraham and blessed him. Jacob wasn't seeking God. Moses wasn't looking to be the deliverer of God's people. Jonah wanted no part in going and preaching to the Assyrians. David was just shepherding sheep, minding his own business. Mary was shocked to learn that the Messiah was growing inside of her. We could go on with more examples, but hopefully you get the idea that God is not just a rescuer. He is a search and rescue God. Over and over again in Scripture, we find this theme of rescue. God delivered the people from Egyptian slavery. He delivered the people from Haman through Esther, right? He delivered David from the giant Goliath. He delivered Jonah from the belly of the fish. He he delivered Gideon and the people from the Midianites. He delivered a remnant from captivity. He delivered Daniel from the lion's den. He delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And he has delivered us from the bondage of sin. What was the Messiah's mission? What was our deliverer's mission? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek implies something, doesn't it? It implies intent and purpose. It speaks of a diligent searching after, leaving, leaving no stone unturned. God's great search and rescue mission culminated in sending His Son to go after straying and lost sheep. And when He finds them, He makes them whole. He washes us clean. And, and why does all that matter? Well, because we're cleansed of our sins, right? And then now we're going to go to heaven. Yes, but there's even more to it than that. It means that a sinful and unholy people can draw near to a perfect and holy God. That we can come into the presence of God without being fearful. Not only do we have the forgiveness of sins, which is a great blessing for sure, but even greater still is the blessing of being able to stand in the presence of God. Therefore, brethren, Are those who have been rescued, right? I vividly remember September the 11th, 2001, and many of you do as well. I remember what I was doing that day. Memory is etched in my mind. I was at work. I went home for lunch and I watched those images play out on TV, those planes flying into the Twin Towers. The tower set ablaze and then eventually toppling to the ground. All the footage at ground zero of the, of the rescue workers seeking and saving those who were lost in the rubble. One of the, one of the pictures that has burned into my memory, and they didn't show it very long because there was public outrage, but you might remember that there was a picture, one in particular, of someone who actually jumped to their death from like the 105th floor. Actually, there were about 200 people who did that. They had the difficult decision to make whether to be incinerated by the fire or jump. Either way, they were going to die. Do you want to be burned up or do you want to just jump from 100 stories and die that way? And you think, well, okay, so this is the point in the lesson where Chris says, don't be incinerated, don't be burned up, jump into the arms of Jesus where he's there ready to catch you, right? No, that's not the point. Not at all. I think about those images. I think about those who didn't necessarily jump, but there were, there were many who, were, who could be seen hanging out the window waving a white flag or a white cloth indicating that they needed rescuing. And I think about those images, and I think, did those people who jumped have a rescuer? Did they have a deliverer? I mean, spiritually speaking. Because that would make it just a little bit better, right? If they had been washed in the blood of Jesus, jumping to their death, I mean, still traumatic, still horrific. Did they have that rescuer? And so I asked the question this morning, have you been rescued? And I want to encourage you, if not, jump now. Do it now. This morning, wave the white flag. Totally and completely surrender now while you have options. There is no excuse For anyone to leave here this morning without hope, why would you play Russian roulette with your soul? If you know what you need to do, do it. If you're ready to take the next step, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, wave the white flag this morning. Jump now. Do something. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for sending the Deliverer. Thank you that you are a search and rescue, God. Thank you for blessing us in so many ways. Help us, God, to be involved in your mission and your will. God, if there's anyone here this morning who needs rescuing, may they seek. May you seek them. We love you, God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.